no way to understand the balance of power without understanding the fundamental gap in human and economic resources. It's not the last word on geopolitical competition, but I do think it's kind of the first word. Welcome to the Pen and Sword podcast from Stratfor, a rain company. I'm Emily Donahue. Readers of Stratfor Worldview will know that in the last several years, the United States has been in an increasingly fraught great power competition with China. They'll also recognize that U.S. policy from administration to administration, from Congress to Congress, and even person to person has been split on how best to deal with China's economic, military, and territorial ambitions, as well as our own. In a new book, Vox co-founder Matthew Iglesias argues there's a simple, and I use that word with caveats, solution. More Americans. To be clear, about three times more Americans. Iglesias' new book is One Billion Americans, and it's a bold, provocative case for massive population growth. Matthew Iglesias, welcome to the Stratfor podcast. Thank you for having me. So with that introduction, can you briefly for our listeners lay out the thesis of your very, very interesting book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so this is this is Stratfor. You guys know all about, you know, geopolitics, uh, th- this kind of thing. Um, I'm really a domestic policy guy. That's that's the bulk of what I cover. Uh, but I'm, of course, aware, as anybody is, that there is growing anxiety about competition with China, things like that. And, you know, when I look at that competition through an economics lens, I, I see that you know, we, we can do things with our military. We can do things with our diplomacy. We can do things that are in the quote-unquote national security silo. Uh, but fundamentally, there's 1.2 billion Chinese people. And as their GDP per capita grows faster than ours does, uh, which it has been doing for, I think, some fairly fundamental reasons, uh, they just get closer and closer to us in the big economic aggregates. And we know that over the long haul, I mean, you know, America has had talented diplomats, it's had incredible war fighters, all, all kinds of people. But we're the number one power in the world for fundamental reasons. We've had the number one economy in the world for the past 100 years or more. And we are at very high risk of losing that in the very near future. And so my proposal is that we should try to address the fundamental issue. We should, in the short run, welcome more immigrants. In the longer run, do more to support people having children here. And then we should address all the sort of secondary issues that arise that come with population growth. But historically, the reason the United States is a major power and, say, Canada is not, is that America's founders, America's great leaders, sought over time to make this a country with a large population rather than a, you know, we could have been just like a giant overgrown New Zealand, and there would be some nice things about that. New Zealand is very nice. Uh, But we wouldn't have been able to be the kind of actor on the world stage that we are. And I think that would be regrettable. And we should be in touch with those kind of big ambitions and seek growth. In fact, I I would argue that the uh, nation's founders did envision an agrarian society, uh, which demands more space for fewer people. But I also well, I mean, they 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 did not conceptualize. I think the Industrial Revolution. But you know, you go back to George Washington, and he's speaking to immigrants from Ireland, and he says, you know, like 
like, this is great. Like, come here, right? I mean, we wanted, it was an expansionist vision, right? Yeah. They didn't say, well, these 13 colonies are nice. You know, we can export some tobacco, right? <laughs> it was this whole, Jefferson had an idea of an empire of liberty. Alexander Hamilton had a somewhat different idea of industrialization. Uh, we, you know, going back to the Puritans, shining city on a hill, there were big ambitions, right? The American, even the American Revolution did not have a purely, you know, leave us alone character, right? Like we're going to be sort of off here on our own. There were, there were big, big thoughts um, about the future of the country. And it's one reason why they like bothered to form a United States at all, right? Instead of little countries hither and yon is there was an appreciation that scale matters to some extent and i think you you really see that i mean i i quote in the book abraham lincoln and his um they didn't do state of the union addresses in the 19th century but he sent like a written message to congress in in late 1864 and he's talking about immigration policy and he says uh, there was like no restrictions on europeans ability to move to the united states but confederates had been in europe spreading rumors that if you immigrated to the USA, you would be like immediately conscripted and sent to the front lines uh, because the Confederates knew that discouraging immigration was a good way to sabotage the Union. And Lincoln said, you know, we need to make it easier for people to come here. We need to reassure them because populating the country, right, is an important part of the sort of overall strategy for rebuilding and, and reconstruction. How will... Um, this kind of population growth keep the United States a global power? And how or why mm -hmm. should we want to maintain that status? We've spent the last 10 years with a large part of the population demanding to be free of global overextensions. You know, I think we've, I think there are questions, right? There are serious questions that people ask about how much resources should we be expending abroad? You know, how important is it that we have this military footprint across the Middle East um, or the expansion of that military footprint into Africa? And, you know, I, I think that's a good debate to have. I have some thoughts about it. Um, I'm also not honestly the most informed person in the world on those questions. I, what I don't think we actually see disagreement about is, do we want the United States to be a country that gets pushed around easily by others? Or do we want to be the one who, you know, so to speak, gets to do the pushing, right? I've been, I was really struck before I started work on the book by, um, the story where, you know, the general manager of the Houston Rockets tweeted in English oh, yeah. on Twitter, which is like Twitter is already banned in China. Mm -hmm. And he tweets in English solidarity with protesters in Hong Kong. And the Chinese government, you know, it's not good enough. I, I get it, honestly, if they were to say, look, you can't like come over here and, you know, do messaging that, that's against us. But they yanked the Houston Rockets off Chinese television. It was a big blow to the NBA's business. And a lot of NBA stars, you know, socially conscious guys, guys who are outspoken about issues here at home, they were criticizing not the Chinese government, but Daryl Morey, right? Because he was in jeopardizing their living. And you've seen more and more incidents like this. There was like a weird one where 
Somebody did a Mercedes ad that quoted the Dalai Lama. And of course, not an ad in the Chinese market, right? It was an ad in the German car market. But the Chinese government got wind of it. They threatened to make trouble for Daimler. And then the CEO, he has to apologize for the ad. Uh, PEN America did this report about how the Chinese government censors movies, Hollywood movies, not just censors their release in China, but censors them globally as the price of access to the Chinese market, right? And so whatever we do, you know, with our military, with our worldwide aspirations, et cetera, et cetera, we're going to keep having that sort of rubbing of shoulders in which as they become the world's biggest market for all kinds of things, they get to set the rules. And I don't think that's something that Americans should be comfortable with, or frankly, people in other countries, you know, because you can look now at I don't know, Finland or, you know, the sort of small fish of the world. And they don't worry so much about being small, but that's because they count on the United States as kind of being there as number one. And also in Europe, I mean, they are economically binding together to obtain sort of more scale there, which is good. So I think that, you know, we should have this concern separate from the debate about what do we do instrumentally with our military and our other hard security apparatus. We want to have the option that we've had, you know, for a long time now of saying that, you know, we get to dictate the terms of our own destiny. You lay out this argument across seven chapters, each of which tackles a perceived problem, such as, you know, where where are we going to put all these new people and how can the United States afford all these new people or even thrive with so many? Mm-hmm. Let's just start with how the U.S. triples its population and in what timeline? Sure. You know, so I'm, I'm thinking I, I, I don't do this is not like a like a, a math problem uh, kind of book. Uh, but I'm thinking, you know, over the next 80 years, China's population is projected to slowly decline to about a billion. Uh, I would like to see us grow to a billion, you know, and, and, and rising uh, by the end of that that same sort of time frame. Uh, so how do you get there? Right. You get there in two ways. One is we let more people move here. And the other is we uh, generate more people domestically. Uh, by doing more to sort of support families. Uh, Then if you think about how demographics work, right, these two ideas intersect with each other uh, because the immigrants who come themselves have children, right? So if people have more children, but also you have more immigrants, that raises the birth rate. Then secondarily, you know, X number of immigrants is easier to assimilate and absorb the bigger the base population is. So you have more immigrants, you have more babies, and because you have more babies, you can have more immigrants. Because you have more immigrants, you can have more babies. You know, I can draw you some nice curves uh, with different (laughs) denominators in them. But, you know, I think people who who listen to smart podcasts understand how – how growth curves work, uh, the sort of basic concept of it. So you can conceive of it as like an S-curve or as a steady acceleration. I don't really care. Um, but, you know, then people ask, like, well, well, how specifically? So, you know, one chapter looks at immigration policy options and can we do more to emphasize skills? Can we do more to encourage people to settle in cities that have lost population? Uh, then on, you know, childbirth, I think we need to do more in terms of parental leave. We need to do more in terms of cash benefits to parents of young kids. We need to do more about how we think about how the school year works. Um, you know, and there's good evidence that you can get not huge changes and people's fertility behavior, but modest ones that aggregated across a large population over multiple generations have a big impact. 
Well, so there's so much that packed into that answer that you just gave me that I'd like to break it down a tiny little bit. Needless to say, immigration of any sort is a hot button issue. A single argument against even carefully scrutinized and regulated immigration is that immigrants are expensive. How do you come back to that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's just not really true that immigrants are expensive. I mean, I've been very impressed looking at the economics literature by just how incredibly beneficial immigrants are. Um, a separate question is like, well, do people want lots of immigrants, right? Because like all kinds of things sort of grow GDP. Like you could tell people, well, you're never allowed to retire. Um, and that that would grow the economy. I just it's also a bad idea. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, I hear you. <laughs> you know, but but you know, so like some people don't don't like immigrants. I I, I don't know how else to put it. I and I don't want to cast like too much aspersions on it. I I grew up in New York. I live in a big city now. I like diverse big cities with lots of people from all over the world. But tastes differ, and and that's fine. Um, but if we can accept that excluding immigrants is costly uh, rather than saving us money, we can then look at, you know, what changes do we want to make to sort of ensure that the policy framework makes sense? So one idea I have is, you know, letting cities opt in to extra immigrants, right? Rather than saying immigrants are going to come to communities that don't want them, let's let the places that do want them sort of welcome more in. We can address fiscal issues. So on balance, immigrants are good for the sort of public budget balance. But it's true that not every individual immigrant is a net contributor to the tax base. So we can tweak the rules to make sure that they are. I mean, that's a that's a completely reasonable ask. And then we can talk about cultural values. I mean, we can talk about how much emphasis do we want to put on English language skills? Because uh, one thing we know, for example, is that like if we tell people, look, you will be able to immigrate legally to the United States of America with a work permit, but to do it, you have to pass this English test, like people will study English and they will learn. People would really like to come here. Uh, so much of what we do right now in the United States is make it impossible for people to come legally and then get upset about what they do to try to find loopholes in that system. Uh, but like, let's build a better system. We'll get back to our conversation with Matthew Iglesias in just a moment. But I wanted to talk with you, podcast listener, about Stratford Worldview, Rain's premier geopolitical publication and a go-to source for diplomats, businesses, professionals, and individuals around the world. Worldview is different. It is not a newspaper. It is a thoughtful, analytical, and intelligence tool that people use to stay ahead of the news and to understand what's coming down the line. Together, Stratford and Rain help you understand the why behind what's happening now. Because what happens next, that's up to you. If you'd like to learn more, consider a subscription to Stratfor Worldview. Podcast listeners can access a special subscription rate at stratfor.com slash podcast offer. That's all one word, stratfor.com slash podcast offer. Now, let's get back to the interview. Of course, we could spiral down into a political argument, but I'd like to stay focused Never. on yeah, <laughs> on on the the economic argument because you know that that is pretty much uh, more equals more. That flies in the face of pretty much everything we've believed for decades. Like a lower birth rate leads to more prosperity because fewer people equals more money for everybody. Um, talk to me a little bit about more means 
more. So I've been very, you know, I, I have had the opportunity over the past 10 years to visit a lot of different American cities that have been experiencing population decline of one sort or another. Um, whether that's Cleveland, whether that's Detroit, whether that's um, Rochester in New York, uh, Philadelphia, Baltimore, even nearby. And, you know, some of these cities like Detroit is like infamously depressed. Uh, Philadelphia is not like that. Uh, Philadelphia is fine. Uh, yeah, I mean, like every place, it has its problems. But it's still a city that is hundreds of thousands of people short of its um, peak population. I've also, uh, I, I met and, and married a, a woman from Texas. And so I have had the opportunity to go to Texas, uh, where I believe you're located, yeah. uh, many, many times o- over the past few years. And, and Texas is growing, you know, very rapidly. Um, San Antonio, Houston, Austin, Austin, Dallas, every major Texas city is experiencing great population growth. And you can honestly just tell with your eyeballs that, like, it's not true that the population growth in Texas makes Texans poorer or that the loss of population in uh, Ohio factory towns is making the people there richer. It's, It's just the opposite, right? It's when you're in a place that is enjoying steady population growth, there's like, there's no guarantee that that your business idea in San Antonio is going to succeed because, uh, you know, there's no guarantees in life. But there is a guarantee that, like, there will be customers for businesses if the business is good. Right. Like you just you got to try to focus on your work and do a good job. Uh, whereas you look at, you know, you look at a Cleveland or a Detroit or a Rochester and the outlook is just not great. You know, it's like people are leaving. So you don't want to invest. If you are entrepreneurially minded, you maybe want to leave for someplace where there's more opportunity. Uh, There's less just basic blue collar service work around because people, the population is shrinking. Uh, The tax base is very hard pressed because they are paying off old pension benefits that were accrued in the past when the city was larger. So they're not able to offer a good balance of taxes and, and public services. Uh, So in the book, I I also offer some more, you know, I can cite academic studies, we get into some technical stuff about productivity and density and spillovers and things like that. But but the main thing is, like, I know we all have these intuitions about population growth that are deep in our brain, because for the longest time, human beings practiced either subsistence agriculture or, like, hunting and gathering, uh, which did have that character, where more people was more mouths to feed. But in the modern world, more people means more customers, it means more partners, it means more opportunities. And I think if we just like open our eyes, like we we know that, that growing places, big places are where things are happening and places where nobody's around, uh, you might like it aesthetically. Like some people just hate noise and, and that's fine. Uh, but the downside to places like that is there's not a lot of opportunity. Mm-hmm. One of the things you said earlier in this was um, population growth through birth. Mm-hmm. We all know in the United States, babies are expensive. Um, I, like more and more women in the U.S., waited longer to have my children. And so I regularly explain to them that my reward will be that I work into my 80s, as you said. Um, (laughs) Children cost money, especially education. Education system we keep hearing is broken, K through 12, and then higher education is too expensive to sustain. So how does the United States manage the cost of a... Uh, larger population when it comes to education 
it, mm-hmm. I mean, if it doesn't work now, how will more children fix it? Well, you know, there's a lot that you can say about higher education in the United States, which sort of dominates a lot of our concern. We can have some hopes for policy change or or technological change. But where I think the biggest cost crunch really comes in is with little kids, right? The cost of, you could call it daycare, you could call it preschool, you can call it what you want. Um, but, but, But young kids... Uh, is really, really high. It's grown really high. It's more than tripled in the past 40 years. Mm-hmm. And there's no... It's more than tripled and there are fewer kids. Right. And there's no, um, there's no like, hotshot solution on the table, right? There's no, like, well, you know, Elon Musk has a robot nanny who's going to take care of your kids, right? It's, <laughs> it's... No, but this is why it's a very deep, fundamental economic problem, which is mm-hmm. that... As our technology improves and as our economy becomes more productive, the things where the technology doesn't help become more expensive. And watching babies is like that. Like, you know, our our baby monitors today are kind of better than they were when I was a baby, but not really that much better. And it's honestly not that important. Uh, Changing a diaper is just like it's it's manual labor and it has not (laughs) has not seen any improvements and it's not going to see any improvements, frankly. And we have to just decide, right? Like, do we want the number of babies born in the country to keep dwindling because that's what the free market is telling us. The free market is saying you got to stay in school longer to make a living um, and it's going to cost more and more to have kids. So people are going to not do it or at least not do it in the numbers they did historically. Or we can say, look, this is important. It's important for human flourishing. It's important for national growth. And so we are going to have taxes and we're going to pay what it takes. Um, I think, you know, have taxes, pay what it takes is an attractive solution. We at a certain point realized that, um, we needed Social Security and Medicare to take care of the elderly. So we have them. Uh, and I think we need something similar for parents of young kids. With all these new citizens of the United States, you did mention that there's room in the cities that are in decline um, for them to be reinvigorated with new population. And that's a whole a great uh, – I, I can't say enough about how every single one of these seven chapters – provokes so many questions and such great fodder for conversation and and thinking in a different way. But, you know, here we are, admittedly, in an environmental, you know, showdown with our past. (laughs) How can the land sustain just the United States that many people? You know, we do know that China and India, yes, they have billions and billions of people between them. That is a seeming unendless uh, human capital. But they are both notorious for environmental degradation. How can we... Yeah, I mean, you know, what, one thing that I was impressed by uh, when I just found it out and that helped inform my, my thing to this book is if you tripled the American population, we would have the population density of France. 
we would have half the population density of Germany. Uh, we would have way less than half the population density of the United Kingdom, uh, which is just to say, like, there is a ton of open space in the United States. Then there's also technical issues, right? So public land in the United States, which there's a lot of, um, is mostly not used for, like, park or wildlife conservation purposes. It's mostly used as grazing land or, or timber, clear-cutting, mining, that kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, we can... We can talk about that. I mean, I think it's a completely reasonable thing for people to disagree about how much should be land for cattle and, and how much for, for whatever else. But that's the issue, right? Like more people does not stop us from doing nature preservation. Um, so that's one part of environmental issues, right? It's just sort of like, do we have like trees and parks and wildlife and, and all that kind of thing? And and it's easy. Like we just don't have that much people here. Um, another question obviously is carbon dioxide emissions and climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. Well, um, and also water. Yeah, well, what the, the United States is some of the most fresh water of, of any country on Earth. So we're, we're okay there. Um, you know, the, the climate issue is a tough one, right? Because particularly if people move here from poor countries, right? If you come from Haiti and you move to Miami, um, your income goes up by like sixfold and your carbon dioxide emissions go up by like fivefold. Um, so, you know, it, to me, it's hard to say that that's net bad, that, you know, letting people come here and have a more prosperous life um, is bad because they end up with more uh, CO2 emissions. I, and I think that, like, we need to do a lot of stuff, right? We need to do a lot of stuff on climate change. I've, I've got solar panels on my roof, uh, but my neighbor doesn't, and neither does the next guy down. And, like, the government should push us all to do that. Like, we've got to get into electric vehicles. We need massive research and development on agriculture and industrial uses. We need to, uh, there was like a great breakthrough with nuclear microreactors um, on September 2nd, but we need, to, we need to put more into that and streamline the regulatory framework. Like we need to do a lot on climate change, but fundamentally, I just don't think that keeping people out of the country as a solution to climate change really makes sense. You make an economic argument, but... Every economic decision probably boils down all the way at the bottom of the trickle to an individual decision. And individuals in this country and every country in the world are unreliable. We're essentially asking for a fundamental shift in how we approach everything that we've created in the last 40 years, right? Well, <laughs> maybe. Um, you know, I mean, I think we do, like, we need to think about collective purpose. I, th th this morning I was reading David Brooks's column about sort of toxic culture of individualism that mm -hmm. has infected American society since the 1970s. Um, and, you know, as is typical of a 750-word New York Times article, um, I'm not sure he was able to, like, fully provide definitive evidence for that yeah. but it but it rang true to me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if we take it back to the beginning of this conversation the united states and china in a sort of geopolitical showdown that could be addressed through population where where and when do we see this happening sorry what, what's that 
I don't want to say that population is a single-handed, you know, solution to geopolitical problems. But I think that when you look at whether it's whether it's the Cold War or, or you know the world wars against Germany or even something as minor as the little sort of NAFTA renegotiation tussle over who is going to have to adopt whose dairy rules, um, that you're better off being the bigger country, right? There's like a lot people write like whole long books about. Uh, you know, World War Two, right? It's, there's a lot of interest in it. A lot went on. There's a lot of complexity. Um, you wouldn't want to just write one sentence. Uh, the United States was a much larger country than Germany, period, the end. Uh, but that underlies absolutely everything that happened right like there's no way to understand the balance of power without understanding the fundamental gap in human and economic resources and as we move sort of forward in time there's increasingly little difference between human resources and economic resources in an ideas driven uh, sort of world services driven economy so you know i i think it's not the last word on geopolitical competition but i do think it's kind of the first word Matthew Iglesias is the author of One Billion Americans. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. You can read more about the geopolitical great power competition between the United States and China with a subscription to Stratfor Worldview. There's a special offer for podcast listeners at stratfor.com slash podcast offer. I encourage you to check it out. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.